0: That you've given given us to gather together, to worship you, to sing your praises, to to receive the truth, the food of your work, word that nourishes us, strengthens us, builds us up, convicts us. Lord, grows us at times before the building up can come. The, The breaking and the tearing down must come first. We trust you, the Lord, the God of every grace, this morning as you minister your word to us, As we speak about the work of Your Son, as we talk about the power and the working of Your Spirit within us, and I'm praying, Father, that You, again, would continue to help us to see things in Your Word, open up our eyes to behold the wonderful things therein, that we might, um, at the end of the day, Father, I guess in this time together, we might genuinely be worshiping You, praising Your name, whether it's through song or Through fellowship or receiving of the word, preaching of the word even, Lord, all of this would be done with a heart of genuine worship oriented towards you, gratitude, thankfulness for the grace that you have so lavishly in wisdom poured out upon us. And then that would also, Lord, lead us to um, wanting to be used by you for your glory and for your kingdom as well. So. So thank you, Lord, for all of the, the many graces that you, that you give to us, that you show us, many of which probably we just have no idea. We're not even aware of how gracious and kind you are to us. So for those things that we are aware of, Lord, again, tune our hearts to seeing your grace, to receive your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well... Um, it's good, again, for us to have our, our hearts oriented towards the Lord. Um, I don't know about you, I need this time every week, have my heart um, oriented corporately um, back towards the Lord and, and who He is and what He's doing and the promises within His Word. And so I'm glad that we have this time together this morning. We're talking about being recreated by the Spirit. We talked about that last week, recreated by the Spirit, part one. And we talked about that being done, um, you know, covenantally or legally or forensically, however you, you want to, to look at that. There's been a legal declaration um, on, God's, on God's part toward us that we are now innocent, guilty, because as we saw in the text last week, 8.4 four. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's law, which is perfection. So God requires that of all people, of all time, no matter where you are. Righteousness, perfection is what he requires. We can't give that, so he sends his Son to accomplish that for us. And for all of us who are in Christ, alive in Christ, walk by the Spirit, um, we have Christ-fulfilling that righteous, legal demand for us. What we want to look at today is the recreative work of the Spirit in our lives done internally, specifically. So, so, last, so what I want to say is this. He does this legal declaration, this covenantal declaration for us in the Son but accompanied with that always, if it's done genuinely, is an internal change of the person that's now been brought into the new covenant relationship with him. And we see that emphasized in our text this morning, recreated by the Spirit internally. He does this work. That's why James read that, page, that, that passage from Ezekiel 36. The work of the Spirit is to create within us this new heart internally. My, 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 my spiritual nature, my immater- the immaterial nature of me has been recreated, and now I want to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit, I said last week, is self-authenticating in that He will prove Himself. If I have been, if I have been made alive in Christ by the Spirit, the Spirit of God will manifest that newness of life in me as it works itself out in very real and practical ways. So so the old Nick was in many ways put to death, and the new Nick is now alive. Much more, um, I pray, much more like gracious and kind and patient and benevolent than I was before. Before wanting to live a life oriented towards self, now wanting to live a life oriented towards God and towards towards his people and and blessing them. Um, And that's what we're gonna see this morning. The carryover from verses one through four as we get into five through eight this morning, is that Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for me, and that has real transforming power within me. This is because the Holy Spirit is the agent of setting me free in Christ, and after freeing me, continues to work in me to live in another way. So this covenantal recreation goes hand in hand with this internal recreation. They occur together. And that's what we see this morning. This recreation is nothing short of a new, recreated heart that desires to live for him and not for for self. So as we read Romans chapter 8, verses um, 5 through 8 this morning, um, I want us to read that. I want us to look at a couple points, just two points for us this morning in the text. But I also want to, um, after I'm done reading, offer us... Um, a warning on just how we need to be careful in reading passages like this. So so let's read it together, and then we'll jump in. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's obviously at the end of our text this morning an emphasis on those who are still in the flesh and what it is that—who they are, with the things that they do. As we get into 9 through 11 next week, Lord willing, we'll look more at the internal change that takes place within the believer. But I want for us really quickly to look at verse 5. And I we need to see the connection between what he says in verses 5 and 6, especially with what it is that he said in verses 1 through 4, because... Being born again by the Spirit, this internal work of God, this covenantal union we have with God through Christ is a work that's done by the Spirit. And that spiritual work in our lives leads to actual practical change in the way that I live. That's what's front-loaded when we get to verses 5 through 8. Just read verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh— but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Now, if you're reading this verse by itself and not in the context, it could seem as if the will can change the nature of somebody. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I'm taking your, the, the, this phrase, your mind, to refer to your internal nature, right? That's the way that he used it um, earlier in chapter 7. 7, 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So he's using law. He's using inner being and mind interchangeably there. He's talking about the, the new internal nature. Those, so if you go down to 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh— set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Now, you look at this in two ways. Number one, he's just making a statement regarding um, who you are, what your nature is, is going to determine what you want to do, your will. But it would seem as if, well, if... um, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, then the remedy to that must be, okay, well, if I don't want to live according to the flesh, I must just simply set my mind on other things. Don't set your mind on things of the flesh. Set your minds on things of the Spirit, and you will walk by the Spirit. Now, that's true, and that's good and helpful if someone's already a Christian. But if they're not a Christian, they cannot do that. What we're going to see in the text is exactly the opposite is that the nature of someone determines their will. You cannot go to somebody and say, oh, if you want to just no longer walk in the flesh, simply set your mind on things of the Spirit and you'll begin to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We have to understand that man's nature is going to be carried out in what they will and they want to do. Because if someone can change their nature by their will, then what do we end up with? Moralism. At best, if, if, if you're saying to somebody who's not a believer, you're walking in the flesh because you set your mind on the flesh, simply set your mind on the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of God and you'll no longer walk in the flesh. You'll walk by the Spirit. They can't do that. And at best, all you're asking them to do is to clean up their moral activity to make them feel better about who they are. People who are in the flesh walk by the flesh because their mind has not been changed. Their inner person has not been changed. That's simply what they're going to do. But he writes 5 through 8 with being front-loaded of the fact that the Spirit first makes you alive. By the Spirit of God, you've been placed in Christ. And by the Spirit of God and being in Christ— you will then walk by the Spirit. And so the believer is called to set their mind on the Spirit so that they might walk by the Spirit. But those who were in the flesh cannot just simply put their mind on things of the Spirit and walk that way because their, their nature has not been changed. What, what's necessary, what t- has to take place is an internal heart change, their nature has to change. And we'll see this very clearly in verses 7 and 8, why the nature leads to what people will and want to do. So I want us first to look at verses 5 through 6. Internally, we're dead or alive. So our first point is that what the scriptures tell us is that internally, we're dead or alive. We see this reality again. We are either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either in the flesh or we're in the Spirit. And in 8.5, he's expanding on this inner man concept, and he draws these two distinct camps, if you will. Have your mind set on the Spirit refers to the believer who has life. We see that in 5 and 6, right? The relationship there between verses 5 and 6. And the mind of the flesh is, refers to the non-believer who has set themselves on death. So verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The believer has the ability to not set their mind on things of the flesh to set their mind on things of the Spirit, and to walk by the Spirit. The non-believer does not have that ability, does not have the capacity to set their mind on the Spirit because of verses 7 and 8, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's all these things that are, are, are part of the nature of the person who is still in the flesh, that the Spirit of God must change within them before they can set their minds on the Spirit. So internally, people are either dead or alive. And depending on your internal spiritual state is going to inform the way that you live. He ended verse 4 with saying this. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Um, To to walk, as he said at the end of verse four, is a good way of understanding um, what he's talking about in verse five with those who live a particular way. You're living, you're walking. It's It's the same idea. They go hand in hand. And it's meant to communicate the big picture of someone's life, not just a snapshot of that person's life. The, to, to walk is to take into consideration the, the many different snapshots, the many different seasons that compose a person's life. And what God is looking at is the way that you have walked and the way that you have lived to him, considering the big picture, Like, I'm so thankful that the way that God views me and my assurance of salvation in Christ is not based upon these individual snapshots of my life. Because one moment it would look like I'm in, and the next moment it might look like I'm out. And the next moment I might look like I'm in because I'm, what am I doing? I'm doing well, I'm coming to church, I'm having spiritual conversations with people, I'm joyful, I'm happy, my relationship with my wife is great, my kids is great. Like, everything's just, everything's just clicking on all cylinders, and things are wonderful. But in the next season, what might happen? Me and Amy are constantly fighting, I'm constantly yelling at the kids, I, my, I really don't desire to be at church that often, right? We go through these seasons of ups and downs, and I'm so thankful that these individual snapshots don't determine, am I in, am I out? It's the overall picture of how am I living, how am I walking, which takes into consideration all of those different things. I remember several years ago, um, a couple people came up to me, a couple people within the body came up to me, and they had a, and they had a concern over the spiritual state of another person in the body. They had known this, they had known this person for for several years and it and it granted that, that those several years of that person's life were not by all intents and purposes did not look very fruitful. It didn't, they didn't look like they were being very faithful. And these two people approached me and they said, you know, we're really concerned about so-and-so. We don't think that they're a Christian. Now I had known this person for, I had known this person for 20 years. And I had, seen, I had seen the seasons of zeal and, and worship and love for the Lord, service within the body, genuine Christ-like heart change. And my advice to them was, well, I don't agree because of what I've been exposed to and how long I've known this person. I think that this is a particular season in their life. Thank the Lord that it was. That person ended up coming out of that season and returning back again to fruitful, faithful ministry, service, and worship to the Lord. Now, if if by their judgments and their standards, they got this snapshot, this person's not a Christian. But I was fortunate to know this person for ten times longer than they did. And I was able to see that I believe this is just a season of this person's life. I've been able to see the walk over time. We, what does that do for us as Christians? I think what it should do for us, yeah, it, it shouldn't like lessen our concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they seem not to be walking well with the Lord. I don't think it should lessen or lower our concern for them, but I think it should help us to be a lot more patient in gracious and understanding with them. We admonish the idle. We encourage the faint-hearted. We help the weak. But we're patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Our ministry towards one another should be one of, yes, concern, definitely. Prayer, oh, definitely. But Patience knowing that God's looking at the big picture, we need to take into consideration the big picture in people's lives as well. First John is a great book to kind of wrap your mind around this because he'll use this term walk over and over and over again in his book of looking at the big picture of someone's life and how are they walking over the the long period of time. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. And we need to keep that in mind with our own, in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. But he does label two distinct categories for us, where your belief informs your behavior. Flesh, the mind is death. Spirit is life and peace. And verse 6 just really helps clarify what he's talking about and summarize in verse 5. And we see more of the flesh part of it in verses 7 and 8, and we'll get there. But I want to talk... Um, A little bit about this idea of having the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Talked about this last week. For the law of the spirit of life, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Free from condemnation, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, right? We sing that in Christ alone. The spirit of life has set you free from condemnation. And how wonderful and how, just how freeing that is in the life of the believer for those who are in Christ. And that's the reason why we're encouraged to continue to set our minds on things of the spirit, the spirit of life that has set us free, the spirit of life that has given us peace. Paul would encourage the church in Colossae in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 to do the same and for us to do the same. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Like, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Therefore, set your mind on things that are above. Tune your heart to seeing His grace. Do the work and form the habits and culti- do the hard work of cultivating a heart that's constantly looking towards Christ and where He is seated. And like the God of every grace, like he sees everything, he knows everything, he sees the ups, he sees the downs, he sees the laughter, he sees the tears, and he's constantly pouring forth his mercy and his grace into our lives so that we might continue to set our minds on things that are above. But The believer constantly is looking towards that, that which is still to come, not setting their hopes on the here and the now. Because guess what? The here and the now is gonna be filled with shattered hopes and dreams and disappointments and I thought this and what about this and why can't this? Set our minds on things that are above where he is seated at the right hand of God. I think Psalm 73, Psalm 73 is a wonderful um, example to us of this. Turn there with me if you will because I want you to see this and I think many of you are probably familiar with this psalm, but it's, you know, it's filled with someone who's lost their peace, lost their hope, because they begin to evaluate life around them by the prosperity of the wicked in particular. And how do you regain? How do you regain that perspective? How do you regain that hope? Psalm 73, just read verse 3. For I, uh, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on from there, from verse 4 through verse 15, talking about the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in, uh, they are not in trouble as others are. They, are. they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Garment I mean, he continues to go on to talk about the prosperity of the wicked. And then verses 16 and 17, he says this: "When I thought, but when I thought how to understand this, right, I'm trying to make sense of the fact that God is a God of, of righteousness and justice, and I don't see righteousness and justice being displayed in my life. In fact, I, in fact, I think I'm seeing quite the opposite of that. When I thought how to understand this, how do I make sense of this? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. It's not until he's able to enter into the sanctuary of God where God sits God, this, like, this is the he, in the Hebrew, this would mean like, don't trip. You enter into the sanctuary of, sanctuary of God where he sits enthroned, oh, in, in complete and perfect majesty, beauty, perfection, knowing and seeing everything that is taking place upon the earth, how one man can treat another man with such wickedness. And he sees there's not sweat running from God's brow. He's not like got this nervous twitch. He's in perfect peace, perfect control, perfect sovereignty over all things. And the psalmist's heart is aligned with God's heart when he enters into the sanctuary and he sees things from God's person. He sees God first. That's what sets his heart at ease. Then he sees how God, life how God sees life and, and, and knows that God is in control and is able to trust God in every season of life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding, Proverbs 3 tells us if you're discouraged, if you're hopeless, if you're feeling like this life and this peace that is supposed to be like the central part of my life as a believer, I don't, I don't, I don't have that. I don't experience that. I don't feel that. I don't even like, you're, 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 you're on another planet than I'm on. My encouragement to you, enter into the sanctuary of God. Come before him. Come to the word. Have your heart and your mind set at ease experience this peace that we have as Christians knowing that our God is in control, indeed in control over all things. Proverbs twenty nine thirteen says this. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Think about that. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. This is not going to go well for the poor man. And the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. He knows. He sees. He is the one that has given life. He is the one that is allowing things to play out the way that they are. And he's not sweating it. He knows he, what the final end is going to be like. Can you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And in doing so, have peace in him, in his person, his character for us. I think of ways um, we struggle in being dismayed and discouraged, even outraged, with the way that things can be. This peace that God offers to us in the life that we have in Christ oftentimes can be replaced with those other feelings. And when we come into the sanctuary of God, he sets all things right and we can see things his way. I think another struggle that we face is honestly, what do I do when those or myself who I think are in the spirit walk according to the flesh and those who are in the flesh do things that seem consistent as if they're walking according to the spirit? How do I respond? If those, if, if those who are in the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, then how can those who are in the flesh do good, positive things at times? And, and if those who are in the Spirit walk according to the Spirit, why does it seem like sometimes those who are in the Spirit aren't doing spiritual things? They're, it looks more like they're walking according to the flesh. And again, this is where we have to take the big picture in mind. And to consider that God sees all of the details of life and takes it into consideration and is governing them all of that governing all of them. But let me point us to a few things in particular that I that I, I pray are hopeful are helpful for us. Matthew chapter thirteen. Matthew chapter thirteen, verses twenty-four through thirty. I was talking to one of the brothers about this parable, I think just last week or two weeks ago. It's the parable of the the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. You just have to know that there is going to be a mixture of wheat and tares or, or of wheat and weeds, even within the church. There are going to be people that we think are in the Spirit, but are really in the flesh. And there are going to be people that we think are in the flesh, but are actually walking by the Spirit. Maybe not so well as they, they could be, but it is where they are at that moment. Parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while the men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, when the plants came up and bore again, or or bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. There are wheat and there are weeds that grow up together. But why does he allow that? Why does he not uproot the weeds right now? It, to me, it would seem like a very practical thing. Just remove all the weeds from among the wheat. Remove all the, 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 the unconverted, the non believers from the church so we could have this pure field of a harvest of wheat. And what does he say? Why don't you do it? Because if you uproot the weeds right now, it might damage the wheat. Don't worry. I have it under control. There will come a day where I will separate them, but for the love of my wheat, leave it be right now. This peace and this life that we have afforded to us, again, rests in the wisdom and the sight and the sovereignty and the plan of God himself. I think of another instance, John, Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verse 20 through 22. We're always so concerned, right, about those who are around us. And we should be in a good way, but oftentimes our concern for those around us are really, we're not really concerned for them. Our concerns are still selfish and self-oriented, Peter has this problem. John chapter 20 verses, uh, excuse me, 21 verses 20 through 22. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So Peter looks at John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if It is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. This peace that we have, this life that we have by the Spirit is one where we're not worrying about what God is doing. Yes, we have concern when it seems like our brothers and sisters are going astray, but it's not as if where we go to Jesus, what about that one? What about that one? God is like, you focus on yourself, your life, your walk. You follow me. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to walk by the Spirit? We're so concerned, oh, so-and-so's not walking in the Spirit. So-and-so's not doing this. So-and-so's living like this. They're acting like this. And again, yes, we show genuine Christian care for people. But oftentimes, we're so much more concerned on the conduct and behavior of other people that we don't spend any time thinking about, sheesh, am I living by the Spirit? Am I walking by the Spirit? Lord, what about that one? Nick, you follow me. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to live a life that reflects the life and the peace? Get your eyes off of those who are around you. I've got them, okay? Okay? This is my father's world. It's all his. Are you going to follow me? And I think that's something that each one of us has to wrestle with and struggle with personally. Stop worrying so much about what your friends are doing, about how well your spouse is doing. Are you following Christ? That's the challenge. It's so easy to evaluate other people. What do I do? What am I doing when I do that? I'm taking the law and I'm placing it upon other people and now I'm beginning to judge and evaluate. Mm, Not doing so well there, doing okay there. eh. How about you use, I said this on Wednesday night, how about you use the law as a tool to continue to expose your own sin rather than a judgment and evaluation system upon other people. Are you following him? So there is one of two realities. People are either dead or they're alive internally. And then in, our, and in verses 7 through 8, he turns our attention specifically to those who are dead by nature. This is the focus on those who are still in the flesh. And those who are in the spirit will be expanded on more in verses 9 through 11. But look at what he says regarding those who are of the flesh. Verses 7 and 8. Now, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What is he saying here? That the person's nature determines what they will, what they want. All of this conversation regarding does man have free will? is God sovereign over all things. You have to understand that when the Bible talks about freedom of will, it's talking about what is the freedom of the person, what do they will and want to do that's consistent with their nature and who they are. Their nature, a person's nature fundamentally informs what it is that they will, what they will, what they want, what they desire. What he's saying here is that the person who's in the flesh, their nature is one where this is what comes natural to them. Hostility to God, unsubmission to God, and being unpleasing to God. That's what they will. That's what they want to do. The believer's been given a new nature in Christ. Do we still struggle with all of that? Yes, we do. But we can actually do things that are pleasing to God. We can not, we, we actually are no longer in hostility to God and we can be submitted to God and do things pleasing to God because He has changed our nature to will and to want what is according to His good pleasure. By nature, we are hostile to God. We see that in James 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Those who are in the flesh, you have to understand, this is, this is how God sees the unbeliever. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that unbelievers can't do good things that, that benefit mankind. I'm not saying that. They can. Non-believers, non-Christians can do good things that benefit mankind. But what the text is telling us is that ultimately, in the long run, eternally, they do nothing of any pleasure in, the God, in God's sight eternally and spiritually. They are by nature hostile to God. Even the most moral, passive, nice, kind, generous, giving person that you meet that's not a Christian is still fundamentally living in hostility to God. Their heart is rebellious against God. Their heart is rebellious against God and will not submit to God. Why not? Because it cannot. That's what our text tells us. I mean, these are the types of things where, like, for me, I just really, I, I, like, I like passages like this in the sense that they're simple, they're clear, and it's a, it's a reminder to me of the way that things are from God's perspective. Unbelievers by nature are hostile to God and unsubmissive to God because they cannot submit to Him. It is impossible. Unsaved man, the non-believer does not have the ability to bring themselves under submission to God, to break their hostility To God. This is who they are by nature. This is why he said earlier in 8 2 the law of the spirit of life has set you free. That's why Ezekiel 36 tells us it's the work of the Spirit. That's why John would have the conversation with Nicodemus to enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again by the Spirit. Does man have a free will? Unsaved man has a they have a free will. Do you know what their free will is? Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Oh, you were free. Free to do unrighteousness. You were free in regard to righteousness. You couldn't do righteousness. You were incapable of doing righteousness. Now think about, for those of us who are in Christ, this is what God has delivered us from. This is what God does. This is the the wondrous miracle working of the gospel. That he takes people that are by nature rebellious and unsubmitted to God and unable to please God, ultimately, and he changes them. He converts them. They're born again. Adopted, as we'll get into uh, in a couple weeks, Lord willing, in Romans 8, 12 through 17. Adopted children of God this is the wonderful, powerful working of the gospel. This is why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate a sinful heart, to bring them to faith in Christ. Faith is not something that people possess by nature. Faith is a gift that God must impart to somebody in order for them to be saved. So this this language of just place your faith in Christ, just place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're asking them to do something they cannot do. They don't have faith. The language should be, I'm gonna share the gospel and I I want you to believe and trust in him. That's the gospel message that the Holy Spirit uses to impart life, to give faith, so that someone might believe in Christ and have all of this, seven and eight, changed for them. No longer rebellious. I'm so so thankful. Like, I was talking to someone else again a couple weeks ago, and I was like, you know, there was a point in my life when I was younger where, like, I couldn't wait to be left home alone, could do what I wanted. No one would see, no one would know the, the, the sinful flesh, right, wants to be left home alone. so that I can do what, really, what I want to do, what I will do when mom and dad are not around, when my brothers are not around, when my friends are not around, when nobody is watching. When, what come, when, when my nature is that of hostility to God, unsubmission to God, and I don't care to please God. Oh, leave me home alone, please. The things that I want to do and will do. You know what I do week in and week out? I spend a lot of my time in that room back there by myself. My nature has been changed. Do you know what I want to do I wanna read my Bible, I wanna pray, I wanna pray for myself, I wanna pray for you guys, I wanna pray for this church, I wanna study, I wanna read, I wanna counsel other people and, and help them work through their, their problems and their issues. Oh, 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 leave me alone, but the trajectory of my life is completely different now, yet not, like, not perfectly, not perfectly, but you see what God does when he changes someone internally he changes. The, I, I, I know I'm not walking by the flesh in that sense. I'm walking by the Spirit, and I want to. My nature has changed, so my will and my wants have changed. I now, bring, I, I now have peace with God. I'm submitted to God and by nature want to please God and, and who He is. And by the way, this is all going to help us as we get into Romans 9 thinking about explicitly the doctrine of election, man's nature, and man's will. But now that has been changed within me, which means that I desire to please God, and pleasing Him is something that every believer should want to do. In the flesh, I don't want to please God. I want to please myself. But in the spirit, I want to please God. I want to have peace with Him. I want to have. Uh, I want to su- be submitted to Him. Um, not having peace with God is the most uncomfortable, undesirable place that I could po- that I could be in as a believer. As a believer, if I'm if I'm not if I'm if I'm struggling with the flesh and I'm living in sin and that peace is disrupted. That's the most uncomfortable and undesirable place for me to be. I don't want to be there. I would, much, I would much rather have peace with God than hostility with God. He's given us that desire, and we should want to have peace with God, please God, but then also be pleased with the things that God is pleased with. And I just want to mention a few things here and think about whether or not these things are things that you take pleasure in as well. But those who walk by the Spirit want to please God and should want to be pleased with things that God is pleased with. Some of the things that Scripture tells us He is pleased with. And ask ourselves, are we, am I pleased with these things as well? Number one, just more broadly, God is pleased with everything he does. Psalm 115, 3, 135, 6. God is pleased with everything he does. Do I take pleasure in all that God does? I'm, 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 I'm really like asking you to think about that. Do you take pleasure in all that that God does. Just just think about it for your own life personally. Or is there anything that God is doing that he's allowing that you're saying, I don't like this? Oh, I, I bet there is. There's stuff in my life. I'm like, I don't like that. God, would you please make another choice? But the believer's life is always one where they're, they're yielding their heart to being pleased with all that God is doing. Secondly God is pleased with his son. Matthew 12:18 through 20. He's pleased with his son. Are you pleased with Jesus? Do you take pleasure in him? Especially compared to other things you could take pleasure in. Thirdly he's pleased in revealing the gospel to infants. Luke 10, 21. He's pleased with revealing his gospel to his children. Do you take pleasure in the gospel? In the change that it brings about in a person's life. How how valuable? Is the gospel to you? You could probably answer that question really quickly and honestly by evaluating how often you share the gospel, meditate upon the gospel. Is the gospel the the filter through which you view life? He takes pleasure in his bride, the church. Ephesians 5, 23 through 28. Psalm 45 If you've never read through Psalm 45 through the lens of it being God's marriage, his his joyful marriage to the church, do so. He loves his bride, he loves the church. Do you? Do you love the church? Do you love the people in the church? Do you love what the church exists for? A place where, where the sick and the needy gather together to corporately have our faces, our hearts, our minds, our eyes turned to him as the source of our hope and our salvation. Do you love the church? Do you love his bride? It's, yeah. He loves praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 69, 30, and 31. He loves praise and thanksgiving. Real praise and thanksgiving. Do you give it? Do you give it here? Are you really singing songs of praise and thanksgiving from a heart that is really praising God? Do you do 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 it at home? Not just in song, but is that just your your, your, your disposition, your demeanor. Praise and thankfulness. Are you a thankful person? Or are you always got your eyes peeled towards what you don't have and what you wish you had and what someone else has? Praise and thankfulness. And lastly, he's pleased with a broken and contrite heart. Humility. Psalm 51 16 and 17. He's pleased with a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart, a heart that confesses sin, and does not harbor it, but takes it to him. Do you take pleasure in, do you take pleasure in doing that? Do you take pleasure in that that's who God is. when sinners come to him and confess and are broken, that He offers them forgiveness. Do you take pleasure in that? we should I want us to think about those things as we go to the communion table Are you submitted Are you taking pleasure in the things of God The communion table is a time for us to time for us to examine time for us to confess and time for us to be assured of the pardon that we have in Christ and coming to the table. You know what? I just talked about, are you truly thankful? Man, this is uh, such a wonderful opportunity to practice thankfulness, the communion table. Thank you, God, for what it is that you've done in sending your son as a propitiation for my sin to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law on my behalf so that I might have life by the Spirit and be set free in him and then to live that life that's it's such good there's no wonder that the gospel is called the good news so this is a time for believers if you're visiting today and you don't know christ by faith and by faith alone you're still trusting in depending upon your own righteousness your own goodness your own works please just let the elements pass but think about what it is that God requires of you in perfection. Know that you cannot provide it, but that Christ has, if you would believe and trust in him. For those of us who do know Christ by faith, this is the time where we partake of communion, and the elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those, return back to your seat for a time of prayer and meditation, and then we'll partake of the communion elements together shortly.